0: All right, this morning we are in Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17, and we're looking at the covenant of circumcision, and we're coming to this idea that God is a covenant God. The word covenant is used 13 times in the course of nine verses uh, at one point in time in this chapter. Definite idea is covenant. And what you and I are to learn as human beings is that the creator God of this world is a covenant God. And that's very important because in our society and in our culture, we've lost the concept of covenant. In fact, for most of us, we don't even know what covenant feels like. We don't know what covenant uh, is. We don't know uh, 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 its understanding or basic premise. When God uses covenant, what he's talking about is an unyielding, unstoppable, unconditional love in relationship. A commitment that is unbreakable. Covenant God, and when God comes into covenant with a human being, it means that he has established something that can never be taken away. If you are in covenant relationship with God, then you have a relationship that can never be broken. Okay? Okay? But not only is the idea that God is a covenant God, but he calls us to be covenant people, to have relationships that reflect covenant, the idea of an unbreakable, unyielding love and relationship, a commitment, a loyalty that is not easily broken. In our culture, we live not in a covenant culture, but in a consumer culture. Relationships are not based on loyalty or commitments to unbreakable bonds. Relationships and love is based on conditions, on results. Ultimately, a relationship is centered around what can you give me? What have you done for me lately? Consumer relationships is rooted in the idea of you have to give me an end product in order for me to have a relationship with you. Um, All of our relationships are typically like that and one of the struggles of relationships and culture is that relationships don't understand this covenant God have not experienced covenant love in their life and all they've ever known is consumer relationships the way out of that is to know that God is a covenant God and to experience relationship with him God is intensely desirous to be in covenant relationship with you and I listen to the prophet Jeremiah chapter 32 Verses 40 and 41, God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me, and I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all of my heart and all of my soul. There's the idea that God is this intensely zealous, passionate, covenant-making God. He doesn't just establish covenant relationship with human beings. He does it with all of his heart and all of his soul. He does it with the very zeal of his being and his experience. When when we come to Genesis 17, we are invited to experience covenant relationship with God. We are literally invited from this ancient text, all of us here, all as human beings, we're invited to come into a covenant relationship with God, to experience it. Look at Genesis 17 and verse 7 is the key verse for me. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. In other words, he's saying, Abraham, I'm not just establishing this covenant with you, but for everybody in whom you're gonna mediate my blessing to all humanity who is going to believe in what I'm gonna give to the world through you. That means, according to Romans chapter 4, in the New Testament, that anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ is related to Abraham and is, in, in, is experiencing covenant relationship with God. We are invited in this chapter to experience covenant relationship with God. And how would our life look differently? What would change in our life if we experience covenant love from God? How would our life change if we experience a God who bases relationship with us not on what we produce, but on what he establishes? How, what, what would be the new orientations of our life if we experienced this passionate All heart and soul God in covenant relationship. You and I are invited to experience covenant relationship with God. And there's a few ways that this text helps us to experience covenant relationship with God. Number one, we must experience the promise. And the promise is when God says, I will be their God. Look at 17 and let's start in verse 1. It says here in Genesis 17, verse 1, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his feet. Face. Now, a few things here. Number one, Abram is 99 years old, which means that there's been a 13 year uh, intermission from the end of Genesis 16. Sometimes in our relationship with God, we go through great silences with God. There's sometimes whole seasons where we don't experience that spiritual renewal or or whatever. That doesn't mean that God is less involved in our life, but certainly Abram might have been questioning, am I still in this relationship with God? Is this still a deal? And so for the Lord, for Yahweh to appear to Abram after that stretch of time was a big deal. And here is what this covenant God says to him and to us, he says, I am God Almighty. In the Hebrew, the word and the name for God is El Shaddai. El Shaddai is how it's familiarly known. El Shaddai, God Almighty. It stands for the power of God, the strength of God. There's a big debate. Some people, some like linguists are like, no, 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 Shaddai means like mountain. So it's like God is a mountain. And others are like, no, 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 no. It means like power or might. And then there's other uh, linguists who are like, no, no, no. It like means sufficiency. Either way, it doesn't matter. What everybody agrees about is that it's referring to the power of God, to the mightiness of God, but in particular to the mightiness in God uh, creatively directed towards the weakness of human beings. He's El Shaddai, the mighty God for the weak, the, the mighty God for the incapable, the mighty God for the inadequate. That's the idea behind the name El Shaddai. In The book of Genesis, this name, God Almighty, or El Shaddai, is used many times. And it's always in reference and used when a person is feeling weak, when they're feeling like they can't get it done or the job can't get done. And they might say, El Shaddai, or God might come to them and say, I am El Shaddai. One of my favorite stories is Jacob in the book of Genesis. And Jacob is a little man. Everybody say little man. All right, and I'm not the only little man in the room, all right? Jacob was a little man, and he was a deceiver and a manipulator. He's just kind of like a sleazy, kind of slick uh, uh, kind of guy, just kind of, ooh, I just don't like him, he's manipulative, you know what I mean? Despite the fact that he was manipulative, despite the fact that he was a little man, God loved him, God was in covenant with Jacob, and at one point in time, he comes to this little man, and he says, Jacob, I am El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply, which what he was saying was, I know you don't think you can get this done, Jacob, and you really can't, because you are an idiot, but... I'm still El Shaddai, therefore be fruitful and multiply. It's a great passage. You know, I feel like Jacob sometimes, every now and then. I'm sure you do too. Another place in the Bible where El Shaddai is used all over the place is in the book of Job. It's favorite name for Job. Job loves the name El Shaddai. Job who suffered, Job who goes through all of this uh, uh, turmoil, loses his home, he loses his health. Even he loses his wife. His wife gets so uh, bitter towards him, his wife says to him, curse God and die. Now that's getting bad in life, right? I mean, when your wife says curse God and die, you know you fit hit the end. And God comes to him and reveals himself, and what Job keeps praying is, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, you are El Shaddai. You are the mighty God for the weak. You are the mighty God for the incapable. I love the story of the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1. And Gabriel reveals that God can do the impossible. God says to her, You're going to bear a son, conceive and bear a son. And he's the eternal son of God. And she's like, how is this possible? And he says, all things are possible with God. And you remember Mary, she sings that Advent hymn. And one of her lines is, the one who is mighty has done great things for me. And I have no doubt that if that Greek were translated into Hebrew, that the name she would be using there is El Shaddai. God is the strong one for the incapable. Next time you're up against the wall, next time you've hit the ground, you're like, I can't go on anymore. Next time you feel like that that you have no strength, no resources left, you're probably right. However, you can pray a prayer and say, El Shaddai, God, come and give me the resources. God, come and be strength for me. It's like the Apostle Paul said, God's power is perfected in my weaknesses. When I am weak, he is strong. When I am weak, he is El Shaddai. It was important that Abraham understood God as El Shaddai because God is going to tell him later on, you and your wife Sarah are going to conceive and bear a son in your old age. How is that possible, God? Because I am El Shaddai. I am the mighty God who can do the impossible. I am the mighty God who can do the miraculous. You want to experience God and covenant? You've got to experience this mighty God. It's not about your strength. It's not about what you can do religiously. It's not about how you can perform. It's not about how great you are, how much money you have, or what kind of car you drive. No, no, no. Covenant is not based on your performance. Covenant is based on the El Shaddai mighty God and what he can do. Is that your God? Hmm. There's so many churches that preach kind of a religious heroism, a religious, you know, be a have heroic faith, have big faith, and get big things from big faith, and be a champion, and all of these, all of these false religions that's being. Pumped into culture which is so anti El Shaddai. El Shaddai is not about having great faith, it's about having faith in a great God. That's what El Shaddai means. You want to experience covenant, call on El Shaddai. Next thing we note about this God is he calls Abraham to an express devotion. He says to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Two imperatives that belong uh, with each other, but walk before God. Walk before me means, Abraham, I want you to orient your whole life with me in mind. I want you to orient your whole life with me. Me in perspective. In fact, that's what the word blameless means. It doesn't mean sinless. It means whole or entire. He's saying to Abraham, listen, Abram, I want you to uh, orient your whole life, not half your life, not casually orient your life to me. I want you to passionately orient your whole perspective, everything you think about. I want you to orient that in light of me, every decision. I want you to be God centered. How many of us walk with God? How many of us have a walk with God? Do you have a walk with God to experience covenant relationship? To experience this God in relationship means to orient our whole life before him. Not to have a lukewarm faith or a casual kind of cool daddy, American kind of Christianity, but like an intense, everything I consider, I consider through the eyes, through the truth, through the holiness, through the reality of God. I have a walk with God. Life changes when you orient your life to people. Your decisions change. I I mean, I orient part of my life to the fact that I have wife and four daughters. If I didn't have a wife and four daughters, let me tell you something. I wouldn't have t- tucked in my shirt today. I wouldn't have shaved for like months. I would drink 24 Coca-Cola classics today as opposed to 12. Right? I wouldn't get up. I would watch football and baseball All the time, not just most of the time now. Having a wife that I love and four girls that are dependent upon me changes some of the decisions I make. I don't stay up as late as I used to. I used to be a late night joy, let me tell you. Imagine, though, if we oriented our life based on a relationship with God. How would your life look differently if he was the sinner? How would your life and your decisions and how you go about things, how would that change? How would your marriage change or your singleness change or your, or your parenting change or, or your money? How would that change if, if your whole life was oriented in a walk with God? The promise is I will be your God, but the call to express devotion rooted in grace and forgiveness, no doubt, but still the call of every covenant person with God is I want you to orient your whole life to me. I love verse 3 though. God says I want you to walk. Before me, I want you to be blameless and look at Abram's response, verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. Love that. Walk before me, Abram. Abram's like, poof, right? Like he's snorting sand the moment God says, walk with me. I love, love, love that because, listen, you're like, man, I can't walk with God. I can't orient my whole life to him and to be blameless and entire and complete and not casual, not lukewarm and to get really serious and central and have a real God-centered perspective. How am I going to do that? And Abram shows you the way. When was the last time you went before God? When was the last time you snorted some sand to get before him because you said, there's no way I can do this without your resources? The soil... Of walking with God is the ground you put your face on before God in utter subjection and surrender before God. That is the secret of to inheriting resources to walk with God. Of course we can't walk with God. Of course we can't be blameless. Of course we can't be like Mr. Spiritual. God is always El Shaddai to me. The only way to do it is to get down on our knees and to say to God in all sincerity, I am worse than I thought, but you are more powerful than I could ever imagine. And the only way I get this done is if you do it in me and through me. That's covenant relationship. Abram fell on his face. God said to him, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham." For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I really love this. It's the name change. First of all, we don't have to call him Abram anymore. We can finally call him Abraham, which I must say is a relief because it's been very difficult not to call him Abraham up to this point. But this name change is significant. The name Abram, it really means exalted father, okay? And a lot of scholars, almost every scholar I read on kind of the etymology of that name, uh, Abram, exalted father, is saying that he was named after his own daddy, and we remember his daddy was Terah back in Genesis 11, a long time ago, right? His dysfunctional daddy he was named after and was a reminder of his ancestry and his descendants, right? And what God does is interesting. He changes his name that refers to his daddy, and he changes it to Abraham, which literally means a father of multitude, all right? And that's a great name change because it changes Abram's perspective from himself and his own ancestry. He doesn't have to get online anymore and go to ancestors.com and be all concerned about that and about the family tree and about the family heirlooms and about the family this and the family that my family's so important and my family's so cool you know what I'm saying it's like it's not about that anymore what it's about now is his own family a vision of a family that is God born connected to him spiritually he is now the father of a multitude of people and if you are a believer in Jesus Jesus Christ, today, if you are a Christian, Galatians 3, Romans 4 says you are a part of Abraham's family. You are a fulfillment of the vision that's given to him in his very name. His very name is reminding him, you're no longer about what your family was about. You're now about this mission to the world that I have. You are the father of multitudes. It was a little awkward for him to have this name change, as it always is when God first comes into our life and gives us new names and new identity and a new perspective and new things to represent. Here's this 99-year-old man who has a barren woman, wife. He goes to work, you know, and no doubt he's going with his little, he's got his cane, you know what I mean? He's old. Abraham's old. He's going to work, his cane, and, and his buddies come up to him by the water cooler and say, hey, Abraham, what's going on? And he's like, can't call me Abram anymore. And they're like, why can't we call you Abram anymore? And he's like, well, because God is now saying that my name is Abraham, which means father of multitudes. And they're like, are you serious? Like you're 99 years old and your wife has never had a a baby. But you see, it's all by faith. Our names change when we become a Christian. We become called a Christian, which means little Christ ones. We become identified with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And think of all that we inherit by faith in Christ. We are sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are going to glory with God. We are going to judge the nations in the millennial kingdom. We are sons and daughters of God. The world says, who do you think you are? You think you know the only way to God? You think you're the only one? You think that you're so special that you have to call yourself, you know, belonging to God and set apart? Man, we didn't set ourselves apart. God set us apart in grace just like he did Abraham. We walk in that identity. That's a part of experiencing this covenant promise. Being so identified with God that he is our family. Being so identified with God that his mission is our purpose. Being so identified with God that his testimony of blood and resurrection is our story, is our witness to the world. We belong to God in Christ. Just like Abraham. God says, I will make you, verse 6, exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you, you could uh, mark in your Bible right by verse 6, Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy of Jesus, and I challenge you to find the three famous kings that come from Abraham in that genealogy, Matthew 1 is a fulfillment of that very verse, 17 verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Now, of course, some people get real focused on the land. Oh, it's all about the land. It's, oh, this, that's what's an important thing. And we got to, we got to establish and build our whole theology on the land. No, no, no. That's not the point. The point of the covenant isn't the land. The point of the covenant is the last phrase in verse 8, I will be their God. There is the promise of the covenant. There is the essence of the covenant is a relationship with God. I will be their God. And God is assuming that we know that that's the greatest thing that we could have, the greatest hope you could have, the thing you long for the most, the thing you are starving for today is that God be your God. Did you know that? You know, all our all my own personal discontent, all of my malcontented spirit, everything I'm clamoring for, and oh I gotta have that, or this has to work out for me this way. And if this doesn't work out, then I'll never be happy again. See, all what my heart is crying for is God. Worshiping God. And the promise of the covenant. And experiencing the covenant is when God is my God. He's not a means to another end. He is the end. He's not the giver of gifts. He is the gift. That's the essence of the covenant. You know you're experiencing and you're tasting the sweetness of covenant with God when He is becoming the treasure of your heart and your mind. When when you are rejoicing at the idea that God is your Father, you're rejoicing at the idea that God is Jesus, your Savior, you're rejoicing at the idea that God is the Holy Spirit, your Counselor, your Comforter, your Helper, your Leader. That is experiencing the essence of this covenant promise. Do you know God? I'm not asking you if you've been to church before. I'm not even asking you if your parents or your grandparents believe in God. Do you know God and have a relationship with him? Would you define that relationship as a covenant relationship? Do you have a walk with God? You're invited to have a walk with God today. But not only do must we experience the promise of the covenant, I will be their God. The second thing you need to experience covenant is you need to experience the sign of the covenant, which is you must be circumcised. Now, this should be interesting. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 9. Let me read through it. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and, and me, me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, how can we talk about circumcision? And I thought this was going to be an awkward conversation between you and me. Until last night at the dinner table, when my daughter asked me, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, circumcision. Circumcision. And my littlest daughter said, Daddy, what's circumcision? And I went, and I literally took a few minutes, and Sherry was like, are you going to answer the question? (laughs) So I was like, all right, Sherry, but if you get mad at me for the way I describe this, it's on you. You're making me explain this to your daughters. So I said, look, girls, here's the deal. Girls are born with vaginas, and boys are born with penises. You all understand this. They're like, yes, Daddy. You know, (laughs) circumcision When a boy is born, at the end of his penis is a loose foreskin. Now, this makes us blush and makes us feel uncomfortable. It doesn't to God. God's not uncomfortable with this at all. It's the way God made people. And when the boy is born, that loose foreskin is considered unclean in the Bible. And what circumcision is, is it's taking, I assume, back in the biblical times, a flint knife or something, and cutting off. That end of that loose foreskin. That's what circumcision is. Obviously, this is a painful procedure. God is saying about this outward form of circumcision, this what I'm calling physical circumcision. God is saying it was absolutely necessary to belong to the community for every male to be circumcised. Both the babies and the grown men. Abraham was a 99-year-old man who had to go through the process and the pain of circumcision. It's okay. Say ouch. Ouch. 99 years old. All the males had to be circumcised. And then from that moment on, every. Male baby born on the eighth day was to be circumcised. That was the only way you could belong to the community. Now, if you were like 25 and Abraham comes to you and says, All right, boys, drop the drawers. You're getting circumcised. And you're like, I'm out. I'm not doing it. Which I'm sure there were some men who didn't do it. God says if they don't get circumcised, they're out. You've got to excommunicate them from the community. The only way you can be in covenant community is through circumcision. Now, it was exclusive in that way, but it was inclusive in this powerful way. And I want you to catch this. Anybody could belong to God. Whether you were a foreigner, whether you were poor, whether you were a slave, you didn't have to be high up, you didn't have to be important, you didn't have to be ethnically Hebrew. If you were a male and you were willing to go through the process of circumcision, you could belong to God's covenant community. Outward physical circumcision for this community was absolutely necessary to belong physically to to the community of God. But obviously, from the very beginning, outward physical circumcision was not the ultimate point. In fact, it calls it a sign. It was a sign. What's a sign? A sign is, it signifies something beyond itself. It signifies a larger idea. And the larger idea that physical circumcision signifies is what I call inward or spiritual circumcision. The point is is that just as a male is to circumcise the loose foreskin in his life, all people belonging to God are to cut out of their hearts and their minds any kind of loose ends of sin or rebellion towards God. Physical circumcision is a great graphic picture from God. And I love how God is graphic. God is always graphic because he wants us to know how serious this is. God is saying you are to... Spiritually circumcise your hearts. In fact, Moses himself points to this very idea. Moses is a great preacher. Moses was a great pastor for that community. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 15 and 17. Let's let Moses pastor us as God's people. He says, yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are to this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, yes, the El Shaddai, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Moses is telling his church, stop being stubborn. Just like you've been outwardly circumcised, it's time for all y'all to cut out of your hearts things that are anti-God and rebellion to God. You are to set your heart apart for God. You belong to God. Act like it. You are identified with the God of gods and the Lord of lords. You are identified with El Shaddai and covenant. Act like it. That's what Moses is saying. Shouldn't we say the same thing? You want to experience covenant. I want to experience covenant relationship with God. It's time for us to cut out some things out of our life. There's loose ends that are distracting us from God. There's sin and defilement that we got to cut out. All those loose ends in your life, all those loose ends that are distracting you from God, why would you hold on to those anymore? Isn't this passage inviting us to creatively and imaginatively think about our life in, tr- in these terms and to ask God for the wisdom. What do I need to cut out of my life, out of my heart? There's parts in, this, in the old Testament, I love it. There's parts where Jeremiah, like Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, he says the same thing. At one point in time in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's like, circumcise your ears and listen to what God is saying to you. You see, there's a spiritual inward circumcision That God is calling us to. And that's what outward physical circumcision points to. But there's a third way to understand circumcision, and that's what I call the upward or gospel circumcision. If you want to belong to God in covenant community, what makes it all possible is gospel circumcision. And ultimately, the, the, the covenant of circumcision given to Abraham is a picture and a prophecy of Jesus and his death on the cross. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Let's look at this really carefully. Because here's the whole point, man. I mean, this is the, this is the money ball right here. It says, Colossians 2, 11, Paul is talking in the New Testament to a New Testament church. And he's saying, in him, that's Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, there's your inward spiritual circumcision, right? By putting off the body of the flesh, flesh is a human orientation that's in rebellion against God. Right? So that's, again, it's a spiritual term, flesh. It's, it's talking about that orientation and disposition that we all have where we're in rebellion against God. And what he's saying is you've got to put off or circumcise that part of your life. And now watch what he says. He says in the last phrase, by the circumcision of Christ. <laughs> Profoundly, what Paul is saying is he's saying, if you want the resources to cut out inwardly and spiritually the sin that you need to do, like take a spiritual flint knife and cut out sin in your life, the way that that's made possible is by, I say by. All right, that's an instrumental preposition, by or through or because of. By or through the circumcision of Christ. And we ask ourselves, what does that mean? What does does that phrase mean, the circumcision of Christ? What he's referring to is that when Jesus went to the cross, he absorbed our sin. He took all of our uncleanness All the horribleness of our life and the horribleness of your disposition of your back against God. He absorbed that on the cross and when Jesus died, he was cut off from God. He literally said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in a graphic way, Paul is saying, graphically, Jesus became the loose foreskin of uncleanness. Jesus became sin in our place. Jesus died for our sins. The point is this. You cannot belong to the covenant community or have covenant relationship with God unless you believe that Jesus died for your sins. That is the only way you can belong to God. And the only way you can even have the resources necessary to get rid of sin in your life is by the death of Jesus Christ. That gives us access to resources. The Spirit, the Word of God, His community, His church, His power is available by faith in the death of Jesus in our place and in His resurrection. If you want to experience the sign of circumcision, you have to believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in Christ? That is the only way that your sin is taken away from you. That's the only way that you are cut off. My circumcision is the death of Jesus Christ. There are people who believe and trust in other circumcisions, the circumcision of their own religion, or the circumcision of their own secular spirituality, or the circumcision of their own pleasure. Or the circumcision. They're trying to set themselves apart by so many different other ways. They're trying to make atonement for their lives in so many different ways. But the only way to make atonement and the only way to be reconciled to God and the only way to belong to the community of God is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And any human being who does not hear that message, does not believe that message, they will not be with God in eternity, in heaven. Forever and ever they will be cast away, excommunicated from the kingdom into hell and forever judgment. You have to be circumcised with the circumcision of Jesus Christ. That message is preached. That gospel is preached. In the covenant of circumcision given to Abraham. To experience covenant relationship with God, you've got to experience the, relation, the promise, which is that God will be our God. The sign, which is the circumcision, ultimately, of Christ. And finally, to experience covenant relationship with God, you've got to experience the miracle of covenant. The miracle. It takes a miracle to experience relationship with God. You're like, what kind of miracle does it require? Well, look at Genesis chapter 17 and verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, we thought God had forgotten about Sarah, but he hadn't. Abraham might have thought that maybe Sarah was forgotten too because of her own sin and manipulation in chapter 16. Maybe God was done with her. But obviously God wasn't, and what a great picture of grace and mercy from God. The fact that Sarah gets a new name, and look at the meaning of the name. The meaning of the name Sarah means princess. Can you imagine being married to somebody who you got to call princess all the time? God's like, man, I love this girl so much, you better be good to her, boy. I don't care what she's done better treat her like a princess. You want to be a good husband? You want to have a great marriage? Treat your wife like a Sarah princess. Verse 16. Guys are like, why would you have to say that part? Ah." Verse 16. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. She shall become nations. This is unprecedented in ancient Near Eastern literature. Unprecedented. Nothing like this. Kings of peoples shall come from her. One of those kings would be Jesus. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a a child be born to a woman who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? It's a legitimate experience with God when, when God tells Abraham that's so incredible that he laughs like, who, us, me, her? Are you kidding? This is impossible. If you've never had that kind of moment with God where you're like, I, I don't think, I think you got the wrong person. Have you ever had that moment? <laughs> Have you ever had that moment? Like, God, I think you got the wrong person. I know, I I get that moment every Saturday night before I go to sleep, before I come here to preach. Like, I think you got the wrong dude. Have you ever had the moment when God says, I want to be in your life, I want to be a part of what you're doing, and you're like, I think you got the wrong person. If you've never had that humbling moment of almost ridiculous laughter, then I don't know if you've ever met God. If your whole perspective is like, well, of course God likes me. Dude, you, don't, you haven't met God. If your whole deal is like serious, like, of course, seriously, of course it's me. You haven't met God. But if your reaction is, it can't be me. This is impossible. Then you're close, man. You're right there. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Of course, he loves Ishmael, loves him, but he's not the chosen kid. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means he laughs. So God's like, oh, you're laughing, are you? Watch this. Now you're going to call your son laughter. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, will make him fruitful, multiply him greatly. He shall be a father of 12 princes and will make him into a great nation. And the world would forever deal with the consequences of Abraham's sin. Still today in Syria, dealing with that consequence. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now the point is this. God is... Telling Abraham and Sarah that to be in relationship with him and for this covenant to be sealed and for all future generations to be sealed, he's saying, I will give you a son, and it is a miraculous son. This conception and birth is a miraculous conception and birth. And this idea of barrenness in the book of Genesis is profound. Isaac has a wife who's barren who can't have babies. God opens up her womb so that she can have a baby. Jacob has a wife, especially the wife he really loved. Rachel, who was barren, could not have babies. God opened up her womb so that she could have babies. Hannah, later on in the Old Testament, couldn't have babies. God opened up that barren womb so that she could have a baby. And then there's a virgin in Luke chapter 1 who can't possibly conceive a baby because she's a virgin, which is what we remain as believers until we get married, virgin. See, I'm I'm back home at the dinner table. Anyways, and God miraculously in the womb of a virgin puts baby. The point of the Bible and everything that God is communicating is that he is able to bring fruitfulness into barrenness. He is able to bring life in the midst of death. He is able to bring light into darkness. And even for us who are declared by birth, the moment we are born, we are born spiritually dead. We are born barren. We are born with our backs towards God. We are barren with a disposition where we cannot love God. And yet God is able in barrenness to bring life. That's the point Paul is trying to make in Romans chapter 4 when he refers to this very passage. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. That is, Abraham believed God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. In other words, Abraham is like, I believe by faith that God can bring life where there is only death. And you and I. The only way that you and I can make to the kingdom of God is when we are born again, when we are regenerated, when the Spirit causes us to come to life so that we can acquiesce and fully assent our affection and our faith and believe in Jesus. But we cannot believe in Jesus until we have been born again. Just like Jesus was put into the womb of Mary, so Jesus must be put into our heart by the Spirit of God. You see, Sarah's barren womb represents our barren heart. Her barren womb represents our dead spirits towards God. And the only way that we can experience covenant is through the miracle of new birth. Have you been born again? You're like, how do I know if I've been born again? How do I know if I've, been, if I've been given this new life? The way you know you've been given new life is that you are able and willing to believe in Jesus. You are able to say to Jesus, I believe he died for me. I'm glad he died for me. I'm glad that even though I was a wicked sinner on my way to hell, that Jesus died. I want to believe in Jesus. When you want to believe in Jesus, you've gone through the experience, the miracle of Isaac and you will laugh in joy and in worship you will laugh not mocking god you will laugh in celebration of god and his grace that's what a worship session is when we sing with Isaac and his band man that is that is an Isaac moment we're laughing we're laughing because god can do the impossible We're laughing at our Isaac moments when at first we mocked God, but now we laugh with him and we celebrate God. And we say, the only reason I'm here and the only reason I care about the Bible and the only reason I care about the church is because he gave me new life. like, I don't want to laugh with God. I don't want to celebrate God. I could care less. Well, then you haven't been born again, and let me call on you. Through the preaching of my word, be born again. Through the preaching of my word, receive new life that only God can give, and you can't receive unless he gives it. Is he giving it to you now? Are you ready to stop laughing and mocking God's truth? Are you ready to stop laughing and disbelieving God and join in the laughter that celebrates God? Are you ready to leave your religion behind and your works and your effort? You want to experience covenant, man? You want to experience covenant love with God? you got to walk in the truth of this miracle.